0: Welcome to episode three of the Clayton Castle podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Castle, and I want to start off by saying thank you to everyone who has taken time out of their day to listen to the podcast, some even listening to an episode multiple times. I hope you enjoy the stories being told as much as I enjoy telling them and bringing them to you. Now, I always said that episode three would be an important benchmark for me. I always said if I could produce three episodes, I would finally be able to say to myself, you know, I have something going here. And that's exactly what I have now with this third episode. I've had three fantastic guests I've been able to have a conversation with. From my good friend Robert Weidel, to the great conversation I had with Rodney Meterspaul, and today's thought-provoking conversation with Dr. Pam Dillian, I've continued to be amazed by the stories here in our own backyard. And I hope to continue telling these stories. With all the support I've received so far, I know we can accomplish this together and continue to learn more about the fascinating people in our community. Now, before I get to my interview with Dr. Dillian, I do want to address an issue near and dear to my heart. May is Mental Health Awareness Month. This is always an important month, but I feel like it's especially true as we come out of the COVID-19 pandemic. Many of us have lost so much this year. For some of us, that could have been our jobs. Many lost social connection and interaction, and several even lost a loved one to the virus. To say this past 14 months have challenged our mental health is an understatement. The past year has caused increased anxiety and depression. You may feel more resentment to your significant other, or you may feel more antisocial than normal. Whatever anxiety and depression looks like to you, please know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. There is help all around. It took me a long time to admit I needed help. But once I did, my life turned around real quick and for the better. Now, as many of you know, I'm a big advocate for counseling and therapy. I always say every single person can benefit from seeing a therapist. If I'm going through a particularly stressful or anxious period, I go every other week. Now, currently, I'm at a good place mentally, so I only go once a month. Now, many can't afford therapy or counseling, and I get it. Whatever your situation is, my advice would be to carve out time to do something you love. Invest more time in your family and fun activities. I know when I was in the media, I felt like a slave to my job. Now with my new job, I'll have time to clear my head and invest that time into things that I love. I like to ride bikes along the river. The scenery of the river and the city give me a certain calmness and relieves a lot of anxiety and anxious thoughts. Now I'm a believer, so I like to find time to pray and be with God. Whatever makes you happy, do it. And Not only do it, but do it often. And do it with a friend. Activities and people are what make life complete. And of course, if you're really struggling, reach out to someone. Someone you love and someone you trust. Finding that helping hand or ear. Sometimes we just need someone to listen. A good number for you or anyone else to have on hand is that of the National Suicide Hotline. That number is one 800 273 8255. There's always somebody available to talk. Now remember, if you're going through a difficult situation, this too shall pass. I love you, and everything will be okay. All right, now for my next guest, she's an educator, a longtime foster parent, and personally, in my opinion, one of the sweetest people you'll ever meet. She's one of my favorite people in the world, and I'll be talking to Dr. Pam Dillion. That's coming up next. We'll be right back. back. guest for episode three. She is one of my favorite people in the world. She is an educator and she is a mom of four, a foster, has been a foster mom of over 40 or about 40. And she is just an overall amazing person. I want to welcome to the Clayton Castle podcast, Dr. Pam Mm -hmm. (laughs) Dillian. Pam, thank you for joining me. I am happy to be here. So... Obviously, I already you know in your intro I said you are one of the nicest, kindest, of, sweetest people I know. You're basically my second mom growing up, <laughs> um, and which is why I wanted to have you on. Just talk a little bit about your upbringing and what, why you decided to go into education. Because I, when I talk to people who are educators, usually it has something to do with their upbringing, the way they are educated.
1: Right, right. I I, th- I think you're right about that. Um, I grew up um, with older parents and two much older siblings. And so I was alone a lot and hated it. And the time that I was the happiest is when I was with my friends' families who had three or four siblings, you know, and I knew that that was somewhere down the road. That's what I wanted to create for myself. I wanted to live in a family like the one that I didn't have. Um, and so I fantasized about how to make this family, you know, I was going to adopt a whole bunch of kids. I was going to form an orphanage. Um, I was going to travel and become a missionary. I mean, there were all these ways that I was going to accumulate, you know, kids in my life and do something to, to help them out. Um, so I got, I guess my first, my first job was, um, with Head Start. I was really anxious to to get some kind of a job, and I think I was 14 at the time, and so went to find out how old I had to be to volunteer with Head Start, and they said that I needed to be 16, and so I said I was 16 and uh, started volunteering (laughs) with them and just developed a a love of, you know, these little inner city kids and, you know, saw what they didn't have and what I wanted to bring into their lives, so I think that, that was was definitely shaping as far as my own education. I, um, was not a stellar student. I kind of knew early on that I was a smart kid, but I was sort of a slacker. My parents didn't expect much out of me. And so I didn't do much. And it wasn't until I got to high school that, um, that turned around, you know, I, you know, kind of, uh, encouraged my parents to let me go to Walnut Hills. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Which was not their idea at all. And, um, it was educationally the turning point in my life. You know, I found that I wasn't a smart kid who could just sit back and do nothing, that there were a lot of kids around me who were a lot smarter than I was, and I was going to have to run to keep up. And it turned me around and gave me ideas of where I wanted to go with my career. You know, I knew that, um, you know, I was, you know, I, we weren't college-educated people in my family. That wasn't a drive that I got from home at all. Um, and I wanted to make certain that I was the one who graduated from college and then I was the one who got a master's degree and then I was the one who got a doctoral degree. Um, and I don't know who I was trying to prove this to, but it was very important to me to keep learning more and more. Talk a little bit about... How wonderful Walnut have, is. <laughs> well, yeah,
0: because, I mean... You think about the alumni that come from that school, not just you and I. Yes. But, um, you know, but other really successful people. Very successful <laughs> right. people in, in medicine, in science, in music. Um, just talk a little bit about what that education meant to you and how that education has helped you throughout your life.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I think from the minute, you know, and I went as a, a seventh grader. So, I mean, from the minute I walked in the door, there is no question that you're going to graduate from college and you're going to graduate from a good college and you're going to go on. Um, And that was very different from anything that I had ever heard before. So I liked that kind of positive pressure. Um, I met, people that were very different from me, you know, and who came from families that were very different than me. You know, one of my friends' um, fathers worked at Children's Hospital and had just invented the polio vaccine. Uh-huh. You know, it was Dr. Like, Albert Sabin. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like Amy Sabin was in my class. Um, and it was just like I, I just was exposed to a whole new world that I didn't know existed from where I, I came. And I really wanted to be a part of that. I mean, not being successful wasn't an option for me. I had to, had to do everything that could be you know, put in front of me.
0: And so you, you graduate from Walnut Hills, then you go to college. What was that college experience like for
1: you? And where, first of all, where did you go to college? Well, I, 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 I went that. to Muskingum, okay. um, which is a little Presbyterian college, central Ohio. Uh, turned out to be a wonderful place. It was clearly by default. Um, Again, I had these pie-in-the-sky big dreams. Um, I was also a young woman in the early 70s coming out of high school, and things were very different for women in the 70s. Um, I only applied to, I wanted to go to the South. You know, I love the South, and I wanted to go to a big-name school in the South. So I applied to Emory, and I applied to Duke, Um, got in every place I applied. I also applied to Harvard or Radcliffe back in those days, got in there, And they very kindly gave me $1,000, $2,000. Those were the kind of scholarships that I got. You know, I was a poor kid with a disabled dad. I needed serious money to go anywhere. Um, So my backup school was Florida Presbyterian. um, And that was mainly because the Presbyterian Church was going to give me a nice scholarship if I went to a Presbyterian college. So I figured I'd never been to Florida. I just kind of grabbed it out there. So it was springtime of my senior year, and that was the only place that had given me enough money. So I said I was going to go there. And my counselor at Walnut, who was a very wise woman, said, Don't you think maybe you should go to Florida and check this out before you just decide that's a college you're going to? So my parents and I packed up, went there for spring break. I hated it. <laughs> it was, I mean, it was like, a, it was a hippie school. You know, there was non-compulsory class attendance. Everybody was sitting by the pool and getting high and there were no expectations academically. And so I came back and went into my counselor and said, this is a huge mistake. I said, you got to find me someplace that will give me a full ride and will take me. And so she said, "Okay, I'll make some phone calls. And within a couple of days, she said, this weekend, you're going to go here and here and here and make a decision. They all will all give you a full ride. So Muskegon was one of those places, and that's where I went.
0: One thing I was struck about in, in what you just said was you went to Muskegon, a Presbyterian college. You, mm-hmm. went, you thought about another Presbyterian college in Florida. Right. And I know you from Knox Presbyterian Church. Right, that's, right. You know, I grew up in that church, and you, um, you, know, you were obviously a member there. You grew up in that church as well, didn't you?
1: My, my parents sent me to preschool there. Because they, the Methodist church where they were members didn't have a preschool. And um, so when we were getting ready to graduate from preschool and go to kindergarten, Bob Johnson, who was the choir director there, um, came in and recruited us for his kindergarten choir. And I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. So I was going to go to that choir, you know, went ahead, went home and I told my parents, yeah, this is where I'm going to go now. And this went on for years where I would insist this was my church and they went up the road to their church. So um, I just, I found a home there, you know, initially in the music department because Knox is known for their music department. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just, it was a very important part of my life. And I think that's what drew me to Presbyterian colleges Mm because I'd been, you know, comfortable there in that church home.
0: Bob Johnson obviously was married to Lillian Johnson, who... One of my favorite, another one of my favorite people at, at Knox. She was just one of the sweetest people as well. Um, mm-hmm. And what, talk a little bit about your Presbyterian values or, or the role that your faith has played throughout your life, whether that's in education or it, as being a foster uh, mom. Um,
1: my my family was pretty conservative. My dad was um, raised Southern Baptist um, in a, the, one of his brothers, you know, became um, a minister in the Salvation Army. I mean, so there's some really very far right, very conservative values that I had grown up with. And some folks that were pretty judgmental. And that just didn't ever sit well with me. You know, the the feeling that I had about, you know, my, my God and my belief is that it was a loving God who wasn't gonna sit in judgment of people. And that's part of what I liked about the Presbyterian Church. I mean, it was so positive, and you know, the idea that you kind of have free will, and you know, God's given you this package, and it's up to you to figure out what you're going to do with it. Um, I liked a lot of a lot of that. Um, Knox is, you know, as Presbyterian churches go, a little more diverse. You know, pretty pretty liberal mm-hmm. in its beliefs. Um, and growing up, I watched them. Um, you know, take some unpopular stands, you know, to support people. Um, and I, I, I just felt good. You know, again, it felt like home to me and it was what, it was who I was.
0: Knox, to me, was always about love. Mm-hmm. And that was big in 2010. Knox was at the forefront of allowing gay um, deacons and elders to be ordained. Absolutely. And so that's what I always loved about Knox. That's what I kind of see in the people at Knox is it's always about love and being faithful to your God, no matter who you love. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of where I am at with Presbyterian Church is that's where, that's where I learned a lot about who I am, about being a caring person, about being a compassionate person. Do those
1: values, do those translate into why you wanted to be a foster parent? I think it's really no surprise that I wound, we wound up being foster parents um, because, I, like I said, when I was a little kid, I had these dreams of you know, being a missionary and starting an orphanage and all of these places where I was going to gather children and take care of them. Um, actually, we got into foster care because I grew up always wanting a sister. You know, and my daughter started talking about wanting a sister, and so you know she had one brother, and then she had two brothers, and then she had three brothers. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> said, "If we're going to get this kid a sister, it's got to come some other way." So we went through foster parent training in intentionally we with in, the intention of adopting a little girl. You know, mm-hmm. because we didn't seem to be getting this little girl any other way. Um, and then once we got into it, um, it. I don't know. Foster care for us was a very hard thing to walk away from. You know, I think that original idea that we were going to get in, adopt a baby, and that was going to be it, you know, very quickly, you know, you get a phone call and they say, you know, I know you don't really want to accept kids right now, but let me tell you about this kid that needs a home, you know. And once you had hear heard about it, it was very hard for Don and I to say, no, we, we don't have a place for that. Right. Um, so, you know, it happened gradually um, because of, you know, my training, I felt like I had skills that a lot of foster parents didn't have. And so we took extra training to become therapeutic foster parents. So we took in kids that had special needs or kids that had had multiple failed placements and, you know, kids that were harder to place. Um, and because of that, you know, once we would get a call for a placement, we'd have a, a family meeting with our kids and just kind of sit down and say, okay, this, this is an opportunity we have. What do you think about it? You know, it was like, okay, who has to give up their room? Who's moving in with me? <laughs> Those kinds of questions. Right. Um, but, you know, I quickly saw what it was doing for them. You know, I think you want your kids to be loving and kind and compassionate. But it's a whole different level when you're bringing these... You know, unusual little kids into the house, and they overnight are your brother and sister that you have to hop on the bus with and stick up for at recess. And, you know, and I I saw a change in the four of them that I I loved, you know. So I think that that's kind of what kept us going for a long time.
0: When you see the foster system care now, there are ads out saying there's a shortage of foster parents. So, Mm -hmm. uh, what is your message to? people, a couple or whatever, that may be on the fence about being a foster parent?
1: Well, you know, it's it's interesting because when we were doing it, um, people would ask you that all the time. And rather than people saying, hey, I'm interested in doing this, it was more like, what are you thinking? Why are you exposing your kids to, you know, those kinds of children that you're bringing in? Why are you doing this? It was, you know, it came from a different angle. I've had experience now with a number of kids who, you know, like you said yourself, kind of grew up in my house, um, who are now foster parents. And they um, have come back and said, you know, when I was a kid... Your family was the coolest family because you always had these extra kids that were coming and going. I didn't exactly understand what was going on there, but I just really knew that I liked to hang out at your house because you never really knew what was going to happen there and who was going to be there um so my uh my niece has gotten very involved she's a therapeutic family also and she now has quit her job and she writes trainings for foster parents and has a blog about you know it takes a village which is all about fostering and you know has gone into it in a big way you know there are a number that, another two kids that were foster kids of ours are now pursuing foster training so they can be foster parents themselves. Um, You know, another kid who was a friend of my kids, you know, now has been a foster parent for five or six years now. So, um, you know, it's kind of that that example that's really heartwarming to me that, you know, obviously it it looked from the outside like it was a pretty cool experience.
0: (laughs) Now, I think it's fair to say that being a foster parent is not for everyone. One incident that um, I wanted to get your thoughts on it happened right out here in Anderson Township, Union Township. Mm-hmm. It was two thousand and six, I believe the Marcus Faisal Marcus yep, um, where if I, for those who don't know, um, Marcus Faisal was a three year old boy. I believe he had autism. He if did I'm not mm-hmm. you know if I'm not mistaken. And his mother, they were at Jules Park there on Clough Pike. Foster and, mother. Foster. yeah, sorry, mm-hmm. foster correct. foster mother um and there with marcus and a couple other of her own kids i believe Mm -hmm. i I don't i don't remember the exact that was the story yeah is that
1: she was there with him and and so
0: the story goes yeah the story that's what she said and um you know she claimed that she blacked out marcus went missing all this other stuff turns out i think a few days later or a week later so he turns out that she killed him she Mm -hmm. killed the three-year-old boy and burned his body. On a, it was a very tragic story, big story mm-hmm. here in town. Mm-hmm. When you see a story like that happen, what goes through your mind as a foster parent? Um,
1: I, I mean, I remember Marcus Faisal. We, we were in the heart of our foster care experience at that point, And we lived about a block away from Tulip Park. So when they were looking for the body, you know, we had a big deck in our backyard that was raised police came and looked under that deck repeatedly (laughs) because they're trying to find this little boy. So, you know, I I remember it vividly. Part of the experience that Don and I had when we were foster parents was the fact that, and I I don't mean all, but a lot of people who were doing foster care were doing it for the wrong reasons. And I don't mean to be judgmental, but um, we saw and heard a lot of stories from the kids that came our way about not not abuse and neglect, but they clearly knew that they weren't a loving, accepted member of that family, you know, that they were bringing in income and you know, that they weren't treated like the other kids, like the bio kids in that home. Um, so and I think there are a lot of people that, that do get into it for the money and not that it's a lucrative endeavor at all. But, um, you know, if you take in, you know, two or three foster kids, that's going to replace, you know, your minimum wage paying job. And it's a lot easier. You, you just sit home and, you know, do that. So I think there, there are people that get into foster care because of that. And it's like anything in, in human services. The caseloads for the caseworkers are huge. I think they try, you know, very hard to to keep on top of, you know, what the foster parents are, are, are like and what the experience of the kids is. But, you know, it, they're just spread so thin, you know, that it's it's very difficult. Where does
0: that, where's the fault for some that, something like that lie? Does it fall on the state? Because there, some had to have been missed there, obviously. Oh, Absolutely. Um, so what, uh, what goes into being a foster parent? How
1: do you apply? Is there a
0: background check that you have to do? What's the process for becoming a foster
2: parent?
1: There's a background check, um, certainly um, a lot of references um, and a lot of training. You know, I, I can't tell you how many hours, but I think we were in training for several months. You know, So um, I think as, as far as that's concerned, the state is doing their job, but because the need is so great, you know, you're, you're going to take in anybody that, you know, shows an interest because you have all of these kids that are waiting to go someplace. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think the um, I tried I tried to get more kind of well-educated middle class people involved in, in foster care after we had done it for a while. And I kept hearing from people, oh, no, I couldn't do what you do. I, I couldn't do what you do. I wouldn't feel comfortable with, you know, having these kids in my house. And so Don and I, um, you know, wrote several programs. You know, one of them was a, a mentorship program so that people could become, you know, like mentors and respite providers. So it, And I, I thought there, that would be an easier way for some of these people to try it out without, you know, the, you know, well, here you are, this kid's moving in with you. Right. Um, so they might, you know, t- take them for a weekend or, or be like extended family. You know, they, you know, a lot of kids that are in foster care really don't have extended family. And that's something that, you know, I think needs to be built for them, you know, as they age out of the system. So there's somebody to kind of have a relationship with and fall back on. Another program that I felt so strongly about and, and was never able to find funding for, was um, a program that helped kids as they were aging out of the system. Because if you look mm-hmm. at like the Pew reports and the statistics on kids aging out of foster care, it's terrible. You know, they they're unemployed, underemployed, incarcerated. You know, substance abuse issues, and you know they turn eighteen and the bottom falls out from under them. You know, and for most of them, their family of origin really wasn't supportive to begin with, or they wouldn't have wound up in foster care. And so now what happens to them? You know, and I wanted to see a program that started early when they were 14, 15, you know, to teach them basic living skills, to build in some mentoring relationships with people, um, then to get them out on their own and help them in a, some kind of a supported living environment. Um, to teach them about, you know, budgeting and paying bills and how to get a job and, you know, that kind of stuff in a real world way and not a class they went to on Thursday nights and watched a video, you know, right. which I think is kind of what happened. Um, but wasn't ever able to get it off the ground.
0: One thing that
1: I was always struck by, because obviously I grew up
0: in, <laughs> I grew up in this house. I was good friends with your son Brian, and my brother was good friends with your, or good friends with your son um, Evan. One thing I was always struck by when I would come here is not that you were fostering kids because, you know, that you had, I, I can't count how many kids that, you know, I've seen come through here, but it's not just that, it's that you, they were really part of the family. I really felt like they were Brian's brother or, mm-hmm. you know, that you have family pictures over there and there, there are foster kids in those pictures. Like, mm-hmm. How important is it when you're fostering children to really make them feel part of, of the family and not just provide them a meal and take them to school?
1: Um, you know, all along, if there had been pushback from our kids and they weren't, you know, equal partners in this mission, it wouldn't have worked and we wouldn't have done it. Um, you know, and like like I said earlier, you know, when we got a referral, the first thing we did was sit down with our kids and say, okay, this is this is somebody who needs a home and, you know, this is what we know about them at this point. And what do you think? You know, and I, I never, ever heard one of them say, no, I, I don't want that. And I, I, I don't think I think we should turn that down. Um, and it was more like, you know, well, whose whose who's room are they going to stay in? <laughs> you know, who who are they going to go to school with? Logistical. Things. Yeah. Just. Yeah. It, it, there was not a question of are we going to do this or not? It's like, OK, how are we going to make this work? Mm-hmm. And it was everybody's mission to do it. Um, now, if you talk to my four kids. I don't believe any one of them have any intention of ever being foster parents <laughs> because I mean, they, they lived with it on the inside right. and it, it is, it is not for everyone. It is not an easy, an easy road, you know, by any means. Um, but you know, one, one little girl that, that stands to mind and that comes to mind in, was one that got paired up with Brian because they were the same age hmm. and this little girl had all kinds of needs. I mean, she was she would go to school and she would throw her shoes across the room and spin around and, you know, and talk crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he would watch kids out on the playground making fun of her, you know, and he would just take a deep breath and say, that's my sister. Got to go defend her. Mm-hmm. You know, and he, he you know, got on the bus with her, got off the bus with her, you know, and, and took all the flack that you would get. Like, why do you have this weird little kid you know, hanging on to you? Said, well, because she lives in my house. Um, and there wasn't really any any question about that. I never, never saw that. Um, since, you know, Facebook has brought a lot of these kids back to us, um, Don and I always told them when they left our house that it was absolutely their prerogative to put that experience behind them and we would never try to find them or make contact with them because if they wanted to forget that they had been in foster care they had the right to do that um but we also said we'll always be here you know Mm -hmm. and you know if you you need to need to talk you need us for something you know where we are um so with facebook you know, they've all, a lot of them have come back and I know, you know, where they are and, you know, their parents now. And, you know, we had a, a reunion luncheon at Christmas last year and two of oh. them showed up and we're to a, they were both pregnant and do the same time. Oh, wow. And they hadn't lived together in our home, so they didn't know each other. Right. But they became good friends because mm-hmm. now, you know, here they were, single moms who were expecting their first babies. And, you know, now I can watch them on Facebook. They're supporting each other and their friends. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. So it's stuff like that that's that's really kind of heartwarming. When you foster
0: 40 kids over two or three decades, what's the biggest thing you took away from that experience? I, th-
1: I think... The one thing that I took away from it is just the overwhelming need that there is Um, and how, how really at risk, you know, some of these kids are Um, when, you know, my life as an educator, you know, we all know what happened in education in the last year and a half, you know, in last March when, you know, at my school. You know, we were called together on Friday, found out we were shutting down that Friday. And on Monday, we were opening up virtually. Nobody had ever taught virtually before. (laughs) Nobody had any idea what was going on. Uh, But the first thing that hit me, you know, weren't the kids at my school, you know, because they have means and I knew they were going to be okay. It was the kids from the inner city schools where I taught before. And I thought, these kids aren't going to eat, you know, they're they're safe haven for the place where they know nobody's going to hurt them is gone. You know, the eyes that are watching to see what's happening to them are gone. And I, I was really frightened about what that lockdown was going to do for those kids because how vulnerable they are. you know. And that's the thing, I think, as as we took in foster care, foster kids and heard their stories, just unbelievable situations that they had lived through. You know, it's... It's it's sad and, and the damage is, is huge.
0: I think being a foster parent is one of the most special jobs that any person can have because you are taking these kids where you may not know where they come from. They could come from, you know, a household that might have been, I don't know how to say it, maybe damaged or maybe they're orphans, or you know, you don't know mm-hmm. where they're coming from. When you get a kid, when, when you would get a child who was in the foster care system, what was the first thing that you did? What was the first you know, action that you took to make sure that they were going to be okay?
1: First thing we just sat down and had dinner. We always had a, a big family meal you know, the first time that they were there. Um, showed them where their bed was, where the room was, um, helped them to unpack. And while we were helping them to unpack, and, and the way they come to you is always with a big black trash can, trash bag. You know, and all of their worldly goods are in this Mm -hmm. trash bag. Um, So as we were helping them to unpack, you kind of take inventory of, oh, this kid needs this and this and this and this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And how quickly can I put that together? Um, And then Don and I just kind of backed off and let the kids take over, you know, because I think it was easier for them to relate on a kid to kid level than it was with us. Um, So that was kind of what the typical first few days were like. Um, We did have, I I will never forget, this one little girl said, when I came to your house, I was heartbroken to have gotten taken away from my family because even though things were bad at home, that was still my family, and I still loved them, you know. Um, But she said the one thing that being at your house taught us is was that families like yours are real. She said, before I came to your house, I thought those were just TV families. I didn't realize that there was a mom and a dad who loved each other, who were nice to each other, that there was food in the refrigerator, that you sat down every night and somebody fixed you a meal. She said, I just thought that was stuff you watched on TV. I didn't know that that was real. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, wow. Things that we take for granted as being so basic, you know, just meant so much to, to some kids.
0: I want to shift gears a little bit to talk. You've spent, how many years have you spent in the education field?
1: Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> you can give an estimate. It's a a ten, lot. Ten plus or whatever. <laughs> a lot. Um, I, um, I, I'm coming up on my, my 50th um, college reunion. And my original degree was in psychology. My first two degrees were in psychology, and I'm a school psychologist. So, oddly, that's still education, you know, was, was a little bit, you know, on the outskirts of it. Um, so, probably, you know, 40, 45 years.
0: How has education changed in the past 50 years, um, both inner city and suburban, public and private? I know that's a loaded question, but <laughs> just general, like, how has the education field changed?
1: my career's been been pretty diverse. Um, so I've taught from, you know, like itty bitty babies up through adults, um, and, you know, urban suburban, you know, private parochial public, you know, all the way across the board. Um, there are a lot of changes. I think, especially, you know, if I think about my experience as a special educator, I've watched that change tremendously. um, the I, as I said, I'd, I'd worked in the inner city for a long time and was getting pretty burned out just because of the lack of support. It wasn't mm-hmm. the kids, you know, I was an SBH, so I was a severe behavior specialist, you know, working downtown. Um, and it wasn't the kids. They, they were great. You know, they loved me. They respected me. I, I loved the work that I did with them. But there was no support from families. There was no support from regular ed teachers, from administration. You know, and I felt like I was spinning my wheels. And, you know, I couldn't really do much for them. Um, and a friend of mine, who you know well from Knox, had worked at uh, a school where I am now f- for a long time. And she said that there was an opening there for a learning specialist, And she wasn't really certain what they were looking for or what that would look like, you know. But I thought, you know, this is completely different. This is the change that I'm looking for. And the more I looked into that, I saw that what was happening, at least in that private parochial school, is um, they had no kids with special needs. There were no teachers who were trained at all in special education. And um, if a family had a child who had gone there and needed you know, special ed services then they had to leave and go to a different school and that's not at all what they wanted. You know, They really wanted to develop a more comprehensive program so that they could serve a whole family and not have to you know, tell somebody that they went someplace else. So that was my mission you know, 17 years ago to develop an intervention program that could support diverse learners in this community and you know, from the beginning, I was hearing, you know, like, well, this is, that isn't the private school model, you know, Mm -hmm. and children can never be identified here in this building as having special needs because the parents won't want that to happen. So it was a huge educational process with the families and with the teachers. Um, I think if you looked at teacher training back 20, 25 years ago, um, Teachers had, like a regular ed teacher, had no training in special education at all. And when these kids would show up in their classroom, they really didn't have the skills. You know, they didn't know what to do with them. Uh, That, you know, thank goodness has changed over the years. Um, And I think the culture in, in my building is that every teacher in the building knows how to differentiate and how to teach, you know, special strategies and, you know, how to teach not just to the middle, but to the kids that are the remedial kids who are struggling at the bottom and the gifted kids who need more enrichment at the top. Um, so that's a big change that I've seen in education.
2: Yeah,
1: it's good.
0: I, you know,
1: there, but I'm about to ask, I don't mean to get political with this,
0: um, but for the past four years, we had a oh, secretary wow. <laughs> of education who was not popular among administrators or teachers what was education like, being an educator, being in a private school, um, and knowing a lot of people in the public school system, what was it like to be a, an educator under Betsy DeVos?
1: Wow. <laughs> Not to get political. Right. <laughs> um, I had a, a period in my career um, when I first came out of my doctorate where I went to work for Ohio Department of Education And I was a grant administrator for a multi-million dollar grant to support inclusion. And I worked all over the state of Ohio looking for schools that were doing it right, that weren't doing it at all, but wanted help and to just support inclusive education throughout the state. During that time, I met um, a lot of individuals and companies who were into the charter school movement. And... My own person, and I don't mean to 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 say bad things about charter schools. There are some charter schools that are wonderful. Um, there also were some businesses that saw charter schools as a way of making money. Mm-hmm. And um, as soon as Betsy DeVos came became the Secretary of Education, it just brought all of that back to me. You know, she was uh, a, a huge proponent of, you know parental choice, which was, you know, giving giving parents money to invest and in, take their kids to charter schools. And some of them are good. Some of them are not so good, you know. So as soon as I knew that was her orientation, I was really kind of skeptical. And then when I looked into um, how little experience she had in public education, either for herself or for her own children or for her, her career, like, why in the world do we have a... You know, somebody who's leading the educational program for the entire nation who really knew so little about education.
0: Right. Yeah, uh, what you are someone who worked in the inner city schools. You, as we've talked about, you went to Walnut Hills. You grew up in public schools. Can you talk a little bit about how important it is to have quality public schools, not just quality public schools, but quality funding for public schools as well?
1: I think I think the quality of your public education. Directly impacts the rest of your city. I mean, you know, property values and whether industry is going to be attracted to to come into your city and to spend money in your city. You need to have quality education, you know, in order to attract those kinds of things. But it, it's it's very difficult. You know, I look at, you know, we're the, the big city districts. You know, Cincinnati Public's the one that I have the most experience with, but it's not a Cincinnati Public issue. It's a big city issue, right. big, big city district issue across the board. Um, and what happens is you know, the best and the brightest get siphoned off, you know, and go to um, parochial schools or private schools. And then what they're left with is, it, it's It's very difficult for them to have the kinds of programming, especially for the upper end of the bell curve, because those kids aren't there anymore. Um, consequently, you have, the population is shifted down as the the services for, for the special ed population are only guaranteed in a public school. So you have a disproportionate number of those kids that are more expensive to educate. And it just doesn't, it it, it doesn't work well. Um, I have no idea how to fix that, you know, um, or how to fund that. Um, I know, uh, the, the parents of the school where I am currently, um, pay very high property taxes, you know, and those taxes are what funds education. They're also paying very high tuition because they've chosen to send their children to a private school. And yet when I have to, I don't know how to get into school law without getting overly complicated, but... Mm -hmm. (sighs) Because of separation of church and state, the money that comes from the federal government and from the state has to go into the public school system right. and then is allocated to the parochial schools through that. So if, as a director of special ed, if I have a child that needs to be identified you know, for with a disability, it is that public school that has to do the evaluation. Because the perception in the public school is that the children at that private school have money, their parents have the means, will give them, get them the services that they need anyway. Why should they be taking that public money away from the kids that are needier? But the other side of the coin is they're paying not only a disproportionate amount of taxes, but tuition on top of that. And they're being denied allowing their kids to have the identification that they need you know, which is not right for their kids. Right. You know, so the the, the system is the system doesn't work well, you know, the way that it, it currently is funded. Um and it, it's becoming more difficult all the time.
0: I'm gonna put you on the spot a little bit. I t- I said we're gonna get into politics, but I do want to ask this question because it's a it's a big debate in the education field. Um you talked a little bit earlier about school choice, which is mm-hmm. taking public dollars and basically, sending them to give it's a voucher system that right, sends exactly give these gives these kids who may not be able to afford private school to go to private school. What is your view on school, school choice as someone who has worked in both the public school system and the private school
1: system? Ideologically, I think it's a wonderful idea, and I think allowing parents to take the money that would be going to a school that is not performing well and give it to a school that is doing extremely well should be that parent's choice. You know, and I think that's a great idea and it, it should go on. Um, but there's, you know, as, as I talked before about some of the charter school systems, um, they, they There are people running charter schools that shouldn't be running schools, you know, and I think that whole oversight needs to be tightened up, you know, to make certain that 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 money is is being used correctly. Um, And I know from from my job at my current school, the children who are in that school choice program still have to take the same test, you know, the Ohio achievement test that they the children would take if they were in public school just to make certain that that school is educating them properly. Um, so there are some checks and balances as far as that's concerned. Um, but it's, I, I don't know. At, we, at, at my school, we struggle with diversity all the time. You know, I think whenever we do a parent survey you know you hear that they they want more diversity they want more diversity but that's it's a difficult thing to accomplish mm-hmm. you know and i think school choice is one logical way of making that happen but it's it's just it's complicated it, it it's a very complicated issue
0: but aren't a lot of public schools underperforming because they're underfunded i guess that'd be my question is why are we taking money from these public schools that are underperforming when there's a good chance they're underperforming because they're not funded as well as they could
1: be or should be. Right, and and you know, as again, as as I was saying before, I think a lot of the reason that they're underperforming is because their system is overtaxed by kids that are more difficult to teach. Mm-hmm. You know, I think when you have um, more kids that have special needs, and not only the identified population, but the huge intervention population who are kids that don't. They don't meet the criteria for special ed services, but they certainly don't learn like a typical kid. Um, it takes so much more effort from the teacher to try to figure out the strategies to make it work for those kids. And the easier ones, you know, the kids on the other end of the bell curve that that grab information like a sponge and just want more and more and more, the ones that are fun to teach, Um are getting pulled out and sent to other schools. Mm-hmm. So what you're left with is, is the hardest kids to teach that wind up in the public school system. So I think that's a part of what's overtaxing them. So you
0: said that you are retiring in three days. Mm-hmm. What's next in your life? What's the next big chapter in the life of Dr. Pam Gillian?
1: <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot of things. Um, I, I, I think if I look at myself, you know, at the core, I'm a program developer. You know, I really like to look at something that's not functioning well, and go in and design the systems that are going to fix it. And then once it's up and running smoothly, then I kind of lose interest and, you know, want to move on to something else. And that's honestly where I see myself with my current job. You know, it's it's running very, very well. It will run well without me. Uh, It's time for me to go and and do something else. Um, I've had a private practice for a number of years that I have neglected sorely because of doing my other job. Um, So I want to put some more effort into that. Um, I've done a lot of work clinically and a lot of research um, dealing with kids with ADHD. And I you know, can talk about that forever and ever and ever. Um, but I want to work with like alternative treatment methods. I want to do some more coaching, you know, of parents and education about the things that I've seen over my career, work with kids that, you know, have ADHD. Um, I think that's, a, and I think that's a group of kids that you can get so much return for the investment that you make in them. And, um, I think because school is hard for them, um, they can easily get turned off and be undereducated, underemployed, and go down the wrong road. Um, I think we all know that there's another side to that. You know, big captains of industry and entertainers and inventors, a lot of them have ADHD too. So it's that kind of, Mind that thinks outside of the box, that can multitask easily, that can also be such a a huge advantage if the the child just learns how to manage themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that that's why I've had you know a love of that population for a long time, and I want to do more with that.
0: Well, let's be honest. We know that your next big role is full time grandma.
2: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs)
0: part time grandma. (laughs) You know, my mom just became grandmother for the first time. Two years ago 2019 with my my niece luna
2: Mm
0: -hmm. um you have a grandson Mm -hmm. and another grandchild on the
1: way right i believe Mm -hmm. um what's it like being a grandma it is absolutely the coolest thing that has ever happened (laughs) (laughs) i love it um and the thing that i see about myself is when i had my own kids um they were you know i was older when they were born um I, you know, got a doctoral degree when I had three kids, one of them was three, you know, got pregnant with my fourth during that time. I mean, it was it was crazy mm-hmm. what I, I, I was so stressed, you know, with doing so many things at that time. Um, I have the luxury to do absolutely nothing with this wonderful little guy all day long, yeah. and and <laughs> it's it, it's absolutely amazing. Um, his his mom, you know, is a you know has a very successful career and has no intention of giving that up. Mm-hmm. So um, he is lucky to have two grandmas um, who you know take care of him each two days a week, mm-hmm. and those are the coolest days in the world. Yeah. You know, I can do so many wonderful things with him, and I didn't have that luxury of time with my own kids.
0: Well, Pam, thank you again for being on the uh, podcast. You're someone I, you know, you actually reached out to me saying, "I have, you know, this much experience in this." I said, "I didn't even think about that." You (laughs) put this idea in my head. I just ran with it, and I, I had to get you on, so and not just for what you have done in your career, but just the kind of person you are. You, I've, I've been raving to Heather for a week about this about. (laughs) You know, I'm about to interview the one of the nicest, kindest, sweetest people in my life. Um, so I just want to thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast. Well, I
1: thank you. And I, I'm so excited with what you're doing with your career. Yeah. That's that's very, very neat.
0: All right. And we'll be right back with the mailbag segment, taking your questions right after this. Welcome back to the Clayton Castle podcast. It is now time for the mailbag segment, and I got a lot of good questions and suggestions on the Clayton Castle podcast Facebook page, which, by the way, is brand new. Go ahead on Facebook and like the page. That's where I'm going to be sending a lot of my um, updates and information and solicitations for these mailbag questions. Um, so go ahead, search the Clayton Castle podcast on Facebook, give it a like, give it a share, spread the word. Let's make this happen. So I want to start with my friend Josh. He wants me to name a lesser known invention, inventors, inventions and inventors that shaped modern society. For me, and I'm going to say this a lot this summer, especially now that I'm going to be moving into a house in Middletown this summer. The invention of the lawnmower is a godsend, something that just, you just push around and it cuts the grass for you. How the heck did people mow the lawn back in the day? Like before gas and electricity and all that? I don't know. Maybe they just let the grass grow to 10 feet high or whatever. I have no idea who invented it. I have no idea when it was invented, but whoever invented it, thank you. My friend Joe asks, best Cincinnati sports player ever? So I actually replied to him and asked, do you mean sports player that was born and raised in Cincinnati, or do you mean sports player who played for a Cincinnati team? He said the latter, but he asked if I would go ahead and answer both, which I definitely will. I think one player that can fit both categories is obviously the hit king, Pete Rose, 4,256 hits um, in his major league career, born and raised in Cincinnati, graduate of Cincinnati Public Schools, Western Hills High School. And I don't know how he is not in the Hall of Fame. I know why he's not in the Hall of Fame. But if you just base his greatness on what he did on the field, he should definitely be in the Hall of Fame. I can go on and on about people in the Hall of Fame who shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame based on the people they were off the field. But I'm not going to do that right now. But definitely Pete Rose. Um, I think another one that's not from Cincinnati who played... Here in Cincinnati, is obviously Anthony Munoz, who actually my friend Joe knows. Apparently, he goes by Tony. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't know if that's true. But Anthony Munoz is obviously one of the greatest uh, linemen to play the game of football. One of the greatest players to play the game of football in general. He's the only um, Hall of Famer from the Bengals. So definitely him. And here's a here's a wild card. Um, let's why not mention one of the greatest players to ever play the game of basketball. And that is the University of Cincinnati's own Oscar Robertson held many, many records in both college basketball and in the NBA. Um, Russell Westbrook just broke the uh, record for, I believe, triple doubles. I want to say career triple doubles, but don't quote me on that. Um, But definitely Oscar Robertson, one of only three numbers retired by the University of Cincinnati, along with Jack Twyman and Kenyon Martin. Obviously, there's the Oscar Robertson statue right outside of Fifth Third Arena. So I don't, you know, you have to put Oscar Robertson in that category as well. My friend Darren asked, <laughs> I'm going to answer this one. Um, he asked, "Did you, have you ever failed a DUI test? Yes, but let me explain. The reason Darren asked this is because he and I were co-workers at WLWT here in Cincinnati. He still works there. I do not. Uh, This, gosh, this was five years ago, I think it was. Actually, I think we are coming up on the fifth anniversary of this. But there was a sweeps piece in, I believe it was May of that year, maybe March, March or May. And it was done by current WLWT anchor Mike Dardis. And it was, at the time, Ohio was thinking of changing the legal drinking limit from 0.08 down to 0.05. So it would take less for you to get pulled over for a DUI. So he wanted to do a test. Four of us, uh, myself included, Darren, and two other uh, women were invited by the Ohio State Highway Patrol to basically get paid to drink to see how many beers it would take us to get to 0.05 and then 0.08 as an experiment for this sweeps piece and um we obviously the station gave us rides there and rides back so we weren't driving and it was actually a really fun piece i don't know if it's online anywhere i can try to find it but i believe it took me three beers to get over 0.05 and then it took me five beers to get to 0.08 i believe something along along those lines and after one beer three beers and five beers i think it was Uh, We did a breathalyzer and did a a field sobriety test. And so that's why Darren asked if I ever failed a DUI test. Have I ever failed a DUI test in real life? No, I don't drink and drive. I discourage that by all means. So don't do that. So yeah, (laughs) thanks Darren for the question. And let's see, my friend Joey asked, thoughts on Tim Tebow signing with the Jacksonville Jaguars? I have no issue with it. Um, I doubt he even makes the NFL roster, but we shall see. Obviously he probably got signed because of his connections with urban Meyer, who was now the head coach at Jacksonville who coached urban Meyer or sorry, coached Tim Tebow at Florida. And they won the national championship together. They won the sugar bowl together, beat UC. I'm not, I'm not salty about that by any means, but I I don't mind it at all. It's all obviously all for clicks and headlines. I personally believe because Tim Tebow, he's a great athlete, but we have yet to see what he does as a tight end. So that'll be something to watch. I doubt he makes the uh, 53-man roster at the end of training camp. But again, the media loves it. The media will continue to eat it up. We're going to be hearing a lot of Tim Tebow in the coming months. That's all I really need to say about that because I personally am not a huge Tim Tebow fan. Although I never understood why he got cut from Denver because I believe he led them to the playoffs in his first year. I understand the wanting to get Peyton Manning. Obviously, Peyton Manning led them to the Super Bowl. Well, that's not 100% true. The defense led them to the Super Bowl. Peyton Manning just happened to be the quarterback. Um, But, you know, Tim Tebow, great guy, but not my cup of tea when it comes to... um, Uh, NFL tight end or even a major league baseball player so that's it for the mailbag segment thank you all again for listening for chiming in and for submitting questions for me to answer thank you for listening to episode three of the Clayton Castle podcast thank you to Dr. Pam Dillian once again for joining me I thought the conversation was great and thought-provoking about the foster care system and education as a whole nowadays thank you And I will talk to you soon for episode four. It'll be another great guest, another great episode. And keep following on the Clayton Castle Podcast Facebook page. Like it, share it, follow it, do all that. And I will talk to you all later.